10, I would like to just uh, pray briefly and ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. Father, again, I ask that you would use me as a mouthpiece today. Would you allow me to be a conduit of your words and to speak to each heart as he has need? Lord, as we uh, dive into a pretty difficult passage, I pray that this would bring life. Where there needs to be healing, that you would, um, you would put your salve on our wounds, Lord, today. And God, we just thank you for the encouragement that we get from being together in your body and being with one another in your presence, Lord. We just know that in your presence, it is fullness of joy. And it is the joy of the Lord that is the strength, our strength, Lord. And so, Lord, we reflect today on what you have done, and we say thank you, thank you, thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, Pastor James was really excited because I get the passage that talks about divorce. How many of you know nobody wants to teach about that? And so today, I'm not going to talk so much about what marriage isn't, but what marriage is. And I believe that Jesus in Mark 10, he gives us, some, uh, gives us a glimpse on where Jesus really wants to go with our relationships in general, and specifically with marriage. And this is a parallel passage. Matthew 19 is very similar. Those that are taking notes, Matthew 19, uh, the first chunk of verses in that, in that passage are pretty much echoing what Mark is recording here in chapter 10. So I'm just going to read verses 1 through 12. We're going to read these together, Jay, and I'm just going to read straight through, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. How many know in the following verses there, 13 through 16, where he talks about the children coming to him. He says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. That's what we did this morning. We're encouraging our kids to come to the Lord, not holding them back. But Jesus here is talking about our relationships. And going to verse 1, he says, and he left there, referencing that in chapter 9, he had been some other places. He had ministered in Capernaum. He had passed through Galilee. And now he's wrapping up his time in, northern, in the northern Palestine area, and he's headed south towards Jerusalem. He's headed towards his Passion Week. He's on, on a, a journey, and he's wrapped up his ministry time in the north, and this is where he's now headed south. There's a little bit of discrepancy as far as what scholars would say exactly where he's at. I believe he is in Perea for a number of different re reasons. The first reason I believe that he is in Perea, just beyond the Jordan, is because that is the territory that Herod Antipas was over. Herod. Now remember what happened to John the Baptist as a result of Herod. 
Do you remember Herodias' daughter had come in and, and done a nice elaborate dance? It is not an interpretive dance that I think we could allow here in church. It um, was probably more provocative, um, more along the sides of MTV and BET. And so she did this elaborate dance. And Herod said, up to half my kingdom, I will give you whatever you ask. She goes back, talks to her mom. Mom says, the head of John the Baptist. Do, we, do you remember why she wanted the head of John the Baptist? Because she was in an adulterous relationship with Herod, and he was calling him out. So I believe they're in that same territory because the Pharisees are keen to what is happening in the political environment and what is happening in this general area where they're currently located. And they're thinking, you know what? If we can ask the right questions, the people and the government authorities will finish what we desire for us. We won't even have to do it. And so this is the area where Herod was from. And it is in this area, I believe, in Perea that the crowds are gathered again. And the word tells us, as was common. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And so in the midst of Jesus teaching the people, the crowds... The Pharisees come up. How many of you know these were, these were lawyers of the scripture? The Pharisees come up and in order to test him, ask, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So the Pharisees, they're not asking Jesus because they are honestly seeking truth. We understand that they are trying to trap him in something that he would say. And if Jesus will go far enough, maybe even Herod's anger will accomplish their real intentions. And in verse two, he says, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So first off, why isn't this put into more generic terms? Why isn't it a spouse their mate? Well, because at this time, women were given in marriage. They did not marry. Okay, they were considered more as property. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that there is equality now, that God has changed that, that there is not, neither slave nor free, male nor female, that we are in Christ. But at this time, that was not the case. And Jesus is going to use language to elevate what those that consider to have no rights. He's going to elevate them in his conversation with the Pharisees, and we're going to see that. But that's why they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he's, they're trying to trap him based on something that was given to them from Deuteronomy 24.1, if you'll throw that up there. Deuteronomy 24.1, it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her away. Go to the next one, please. Sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So there was this premonition that they were allowed to send their wives away if they found any indecency. And this was assumed to be sexual immorality of some sort, that she had done something not just, and I even read some rabbis believe that if they had even prepared a meal and burnt it, Bob, that you could send her away. I don't think that those extremes would, would fall under uh, Deuteronomy law. Don't try that. But the idea is that they could give a writ of divorce, a certificate of divorce, meaning that they could send her away. And this was actually in protection of the helpless party. This was to protect the women, that they just couldn't be sent away for any, any reason, and that they wouldn't have any uh, recourse as far as the future of their life after that. 
And so in, in, uh, in the ability to be able to protect them, Moses gives them somewhat of a stipend to be able to have some sort of recourse for their future. Now let me, let me pause and let's give a commercial that though we're talking about divorce today, that I don't believe that your past means that there is no hope for redemption for your future. Okay? And so if we were talking about the sanctity of life, it does not mean that your past changes that God can heal you and give you hope for your future. Because I still believe that. And so this message is not to heap more guilt or shame upon you, but for us to dive into what God has for all of us in understanding his redemptive work towards a perfect future. There may be things that we can go back and mend, or there may be simply things that, that we have regrets and we learn from and don't repeat. Okay? And so there is a plan, though, from the beginning that we will do well to understand. And so now the Pharisees saw divorce is merely a legal issue rather than a spiritual one. It was simply a matter of law. It, it had very little to do with their hearts. It was a matter of, of, of if I can or if I can't, according to the law of what we've been handed down to us. But Jesus uses this test as an opportunity to review God's intended purpose for marriage and to expose the Pharisees' selfish motives. They're not thinking about what God originally intended. They're thinking about their marriages of convenience, they're, th they're quoting Moses unfairly and out of context, showing that the, as legal experts how superficial they are in their knowledge of the law. But let's get back to questions that we ask God. I want you to think about it. You may not verbally put it with a question mark in the end, but how we question God. And sometimes it's not always just about what we ask, but it's why we're asking it. It's the motive with which we ask it that undertones our words. And we're promised, we're promised that if we seek, we will find. And if we knock, the door will be open. And Jesus, in teaching on persistent prayer in Luke 18, he describes their persistent widow. So there is an idea that sometimes even asking and asking is encouraged, that the Lord would say this is right. And there's something to be said about our approach to God. And how many of you know that sometimes when we're talking about perseverance and persistence, sometimes you don't beat the devil, you just wear his butt out. Do you know that perseverance and persistence is a fruit of the Spirit? Capital S, Spirit. That means the devil doesn't have it. He doesn't have perseverance and persistence. You may think he doesn't give up, but it is a fruit of God's Holy Spirit. And sometimes we can just wear him out before we can just defeat him, so to speak. He'll just get tired and say, you know what? They've got, they've got a fruit that I don't have, and we can wear him out. But in our asking, James tells us that if, not Pastor James, but the book of James tells us, but he would probably agree with it, that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. These are faithful promises. But how many of you know the Pharisees were not seeking in order to find? They were not knocking in order for a door to be opened. They were not wearing him out, so to speak, because they were so invested in a kingdom other than their own. And the Greek word literally here, which is aperotao, meaning literally to accost one, to interrogate, to even ask of or demand of someone. They are coming up to him and interrogating. There's already this tone of accosting Jesus for an answer that they already think they know. 
You see, I believe that we can barrage God in our worship services, even in our homes and in our minds so much that we begin to transform him into our image and not vice versa. And that's a slippery slope when we begin to want God to look more like us and not the other way around. And we may even gather some concepts of truth because I believe that what the Pharisees had were true. But the problem was that they never had these concepts translate into convictions. And let me explain what I mean by that. How many of you know we can have concepts or knowledge and it can stay up here, but it will never work its way out into our life until it becomes a conviction. We will never look any different because of what we know, except unless it becomes a conviction in our heart. I believe that a lot of people have learned a lot of things that are true, but it has just become more ammunition to argue their point is valid. But it has never been coupled with humility to translate into a life that looks transformed. And so the Pharisees have some things that are true. They have the commands of God, but they don't have the God of the commands. They have his rules, but he is not their ruler. And there's a big difference there. And so things don't make sense to them when they ask this question any other way than the way they see it. And so when Jesus takes them back to the beginning, as he's about to do, ho, 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 wait a minute. You can't do that, Jesus. But he can. Because it's not about the rules and the commands. It's about the one who gave them and understanding that there was an intention all along that was completely different, completely different than the rules that Moses allowed. And we're about to see that. And so Jesus is getting ready to show the Pharisees that it is not about the knowledge or the concepts or the laws that you may have as much as it is about the connection that you have with the one who gave them. And further down in this chapter, you'll see, and I, I may be still in whoever's preaching next, but he talks to a rich young ruler. And at that point, he talks to him about, hey, it's not, he, the rich young ruler thought he was keeping all the laws. He thought he was following God. And Jesus said, it's not about what you have, it's about who has your heart. And he begins to realize that it's not about these routine laws, but Jesus begins to touch on the riches that actually rule his heart. And so verse 3, he answered them a question with a question. What did Moses command you? How many of you, it just irritates you to death when you ask someone a question and they're not going to answer you except with another question? Bob, does that happen with you? Oh my so you ask a question, and they're not going to give you a clear answer. <laughs> My wife's grimacing. <laughs> Instead, they just respond to you with, well, I mean, what about this? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go eat? Let's never talk about where we're going to go eat. Heaven forbid. I think that's 99% of most arguments right there. <laughs> Maybe in my house. And so Jesus begins to answer their question with a question, and I think it was just as irritating to them because he's dancing around giving a straight answer. And he does it intentionally because he realizes they're not after truth, they're after a trap. And the Lord already knows why we're questioning, why we're doubting, why we're walking down a journey we are, whether we're genuinely seeking truth or if we're just looking to give ourselves justification or to catch Jesus and maybe something that is permissible that we have permissibility, that Moses has given a law that is allowed, but isn't beneficial. God knows our heart. And he says, what does Moses command of you? 
And in verse 4, their response is, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And that's exactly what we just read in Deuteronomy 24. And the allowance for such a situation, it does not justify the law. And let me explain that. And I think you'll understand. I mean, you know, Paul would even tell us in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, if you have that, Jay, throw it up there. This is going to be in the NIV. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, and says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's saying this in light of sexual immorality. He says food was made for the body and the stomach for food, but... Your body was not designed for sexual morality. Your bodies are members of Christ himself and were not designed to be coupled with evil. And he goes on, even in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, he says again, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Paul is applying a principle. And I want you to catch this, that oftentimes we may think we have a freedom but it may not be beneficial to the purpose and the call and the anointing that God has on your life. Yeah, you may be allowed to go to such and such a place, to eat and to drink such and such a thing, but is it going to be beneficial to you? It may not be a direct sin, but you may have a higher calling. You may have a different anointing on your life. You may have a call that the Lord is trying to take you down a path, but you want to shortcut it because you want to say this is permissible for me, but it's not beneficial. And I believe Paul would give us a principle here that is important for us to understand. And, and honestly, these are some, some stances that we've taken with our ministry at Kiko. is there are some things that permissibly, according to the scripture, we could partake in, but it wouldn't benefit us in ministry for anyone to see us partaking in such things. It would literally cause others to stumble. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew, Greeks, or the church. And I believe that we can apply this to many areas of our life. And so Jesus takes us back to the very beginning, and I love this. In verse 5, he says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And in verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus begins to paint the picture of God's original design, of his original intent. And that is what redemption is working back towards. How many of you know that the redemption of Christ isn't working back towards a perfected law, but a perfected creation? We are not to fall back under rules and regulations. And if there's one thing that you walk out of here with a sense of, I don't want it to be a sense of, I've got to do this. I can't do that. I've got to be this way. I can't be that way. I want it to be a sense of, God's got something great for me. And I want to walk in his original plan for my life. He is, he is restoring all things. He is redeeming all things. We even see it in creation, the groans, as Romans 8 would talk about the groans of all creation, that they are even recognizing that things are off. I believe we see it in the animal world, in the plant world. We see it in every kingdom. And the kingdom of God is the only one that can restore all things. And he's doing that through his church, through his people. And so Jesus takes us back to the beginning. Because there are bottom line aspects to who God is. We'll go back to camp for my teenagers that went to camp with me. Y'all remember some of the wrecks have he said, that's the bottom line. 
That's the bottom line. Well, there are bottom line aspects to who God is. He is love. He is faithful. He is holy. He is just. That's the bottom line. That is who God is. And everything that God is restoring in us is imitating and mimicking the image that he originally stamped on us as his creation. He is taking us back to that moment in the garden before there was sin. Those are our plumb lines, and it all comes based off of who God is, and he has called us to imitate. However, I believe there are things that he may ask of you that are personal, that are just based on your relationship with him. And that's where it comes into play that, you know what, you may be permitted to, but it's not beneficial. It's not the relationship I have with you. It's not what I've called you to do. Maybe because of your personal makeup in your past, God knows that, you know what, that may not be a sin for all, but it is for you. And you know what I'm referring to in different areas of our lives. If we've had an addiction, it may not necessarily be a sin to do certain things, but it is, becomes a sin for us because it had been a controlling avenue in our life before we met Christ. And so for us to be in those environments, it would, be, it would not be beneficial. And I know pastor has mentioned things like that before. But for us, we have to understand that this is, this is tailor-made. While there are absolute truths for our life, there are tailor-made avenues, I believe, that the Lord would call for each one of us. And for us to do those things would not be beneficial. And so verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. What if there are some things in our life that God has permitted or allowed but don't flow into our best? What if they may be beneficial, I mean permissible but not beneficial? What if even due to the hardness of our own hearts, we have stunted the process of transformation and sanctification in our own lives? What if we have justified some things that really are causing us to stay exactly where we're at and we can't move any further until we, we realize, you know what, God? I've, I've allowed these things, but you haven't. You gave it to me as an allowance maybe because of my hardness of heart. But his love would tell us today, I have an original design that is even greater. I have an original design that is for you, for you to operate on all cylinders spiritually. That grace is coming. And so I believe that Moses was permitted to give the certificate of divorce as an accommodation to human weakness. And it was an attempt to bring some sort of order in a society that disregarded God's standards. It was not what God intended in marriage. And his, des his design in creating man and woman was that marriage should be an unbroken, lifelong union. God's gracious provision for divorce wasn't an approval of it. God's gracious provision of divorce wasn't an approval of it. And God has allowed divorce as a concession at this point in the scripture where he's referring to to people's sinfulness. And so while it wasn't approved, it did protect the injured party from bad situations. And unfortunately, the Pharisees are using this as a proof text for all divorce, regardless of the situation. And that's where they're out of context. And God is, Jesus is taking them back to the original design, the original intent. In verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation... Ms. Gale just preached on it a couple of Wednesdays ago, how marriage even supersedes that of the relationship between parents and children, and that we hold fast. She said, leave and cleave, leave and cleave. She said it a bunch of times, that the two become one flesh. And in Jewish language, this imitated uh, oxen that would be yoked together 
where they literally, even though they were two different creatures, they had to move in the same direction to be productive. And for us, Jesus see, literally sees the two becoming so much as one that he doesn't recognize them as separate again. And that's where Jesus is teaching on, uh, on divorce in other areas. The Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew 19 is a little bit harder than even Mark 10. He doesn't recognize when the union as one ever becomes two again. Uh, Matthew 5, I'm going to skip there. He says this, he says, he's establishing the ways of the kingdom and he's doing so redefining the relationship with the law. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. There are six antithetical statements that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is, this is two of them dealing with lust and divorce. And he says, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. He says, but I tell you, if you've had lust in your heart. He went directly to the heart of the matter. Not so much what was permitted by law, but what was in the heart from the original intent, from God's original design. What did he create you to think and to dwell upon? Not just what you do and don't do. And then in verse 31, and it was also said, you have heard that it was said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, another antithetical statement, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. How is that possible? And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So even if they have split and they remarry, except on the grounds that he is giving here, he says, I don't recognize that they ever split. Those two are still one. And I don't want to get into a number of the different nuances of what we experience in divorces today because I believe that God's law is providing protection due to the hardness of hearts and the sinfulnesses in the world. I believe that God still allows through his grace to provide protection for, I don't want to say weaker vessels or parties in this instance, but that is the way the scriptures were laid out then, that it would protect those who were not protected otherwise without such laws. And so he allows those in this time due to our sinful world and natures that we deal with on a daily basis. And so he's taking us back to the beginning and he quotes Genesis 2. And I'm going to read briefly to 18 through 25 where he says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. How many know it is not good for the man to be alone? When it comes to mealtime, it is not good for a man to be alone. There's other times too when it is not good for a man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. In verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, everything he's made, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Into verse 20. And so verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and Eve and Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. When we are walking in Christ and in the fulfillment of what his redemptive work is, let me remind you, there is redemption. And when redemption is in play, when redemption is in the picture, there is no shame. There is no condemnation. As Romans 8, 1 would say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit and life has set us free from the law of sin and death. There is freedom 
There is freedom. There is freedom. So regardless of present, regardless of past, there is redemption. There is redemption. There is redemption. Thank the Lord for redemption. And so he says that going back to the beginning, that the two have become one. How beautiful it is for the two to become one. And he is raising our status and dignity this morning as he did for the women in that day. A man was said that he could never commit adultery against his wife no matter what he did. But Jesus, by putting the husband under the same moral obligation as the wife, raised the status and dignity of all women. Jesus was the first feminist. He wasn't really the first. There were others before him. But there was equality. And Christ reconciled all things to himself, including the distinctions, the callings that are irrevocable, that extends to the, the family and us as individuals as well. The callings are irrevocable for Israel and the callings for us in the units of our marriage are the same. There is redemption. Even if we may stray, there is always the ability to come back. I believe that is a forever covenant that he has with us because it imitates who he is in his likeness. The relationship that God the Father has with the Holy Spirit begets the Son. And there is fruit among the Godhead himself, if I can have a little lenience in the Trinity, to see the unity among himself as three different individuals. To see three be one. To see two be one and be fruitful and multiply. Even if that fruit comes into your home through other means than your own loins, I believe that we are called to populate this earth as through discipleship, through procreation spiritually, that we can perpetuate what God is doing in a positive way in the earth and through our lives. And so Jesus says here, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I think that is the bottom line, so to speak, that Jesus would, would leave with us, that what God has joined together, let no man separate. We would do well post-Protestantism to remember this, that let what God has joined together, let no man separate. So let me give you briefly 20 quick points on how to keep together what God has already joined. I'm going to have subpoints. Just kidding. I've only got five. <laughs> this is going to be another series. But let what God has joined together, no man separate. The first thing I want to remind us of is that keep it different, but for the same purpose. How many of you know unity does not mean uniformity? Okay? Unity does not mean we have to agree on everything. There's things I love about the Protestant movement. How many of you realize that the Catholic Church, how many times did it split over the centuries? Two. Two times the Catholic Church has split. How many times has, under denominationalism, Protestant Church split in the last 30 days? It's terrible, right? Point, point made. When we get to Protestant, which was literally meant to mean pro-Testament, pro-New Covenant, the first six months it carried that term, but after that it was literally meant protester. The 95 Theses became the protest. And we moved into denominationalism. And so 
There are things that I love about it, but unity and keeping it different, but for the same purpose is part of what God has joined together that no man should be able to separate. This is his body, not ours. This is, this is the, the body of Christ, not what I prefer and what you may like over what I may like. And under denominationalism, since I'm on my soapbox already, here are some things that we squash. How many of you know, if I can keep you from having an opinion, then we won't have disunity. <laughs> and if I can keep you from having an opinion, that means I got to keep you from thinking. So check your brain at the door, right? And I, I certainly don't want to inspire you because that's going to lead to thoughts that then lead to opinions. But that is not what we're against here because we believe that there can be different but unified. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll jump off. The other things that we can do, my other 19 points and subpoints coming of how to keep together what God has already joined is keep it PG. Don't let your conversations, whether among coworkers or classmates or teachers, don't let them or even our eyes run down a path that there's no coming back from. Keep it PG. Another way to keep together what God has already joined together, keep it zipped. This one goes without explanation, Rick. Keep it zipped. All right, I said it. But number four, in all seriousness, keep Christ the center. Jazz can't believe that that was part of my message, but it was. <laughs> keep the mouth zipped, Gail says. Absolutely, what were y'all thinking? Man, this crowd is rough. But in all seriousness, keep Christ the center. This is where it keeps the first three in line. Because if he is the center of all our relationships, especially of our marriage if we're married, but if Christ is the center, then everything orbs around him. Not around what we desire, not around our expectations. We're able to have our expectations shattered, and it doesn't shatter us because it revolves around Christ and not us. Boy, that's tough. That's called fleshing out the cross. Keep Christ the center. He gives us the paradigm of servanthood within marriage. And when he's the center, we realize that love is truly love when we're not first and he is. And finally, number five, keep seeking. Keep seeking. And I believe Jesus would say in reference to the Pharisees, no, truly seeking. Referring back to what we mentioned the Pharisees were not after more than just concepts of truth, but to be transferred into our hearts, into convictions. Let's seek the Lord while he may be found. That means there's going to be a day when he can't be found. There may be a moment when we have turned our heart too far, that due to the hardness of our heart, he has allowed, he has allowed, he has allowed, and then he has allowed us to go our own way. But seek him while he may be found, that the hardness of our hearts may be undone, and that we may experience redemption to the original design that he has for our lives in every area. That's the gospel. That what we can't do in every area of our life, Christ already did. In our relationships, in our greed, in our desires, in our eating, in whatever it may be, in our work ethic, in, the, in our thought life, in our, our emotional status, what we feel like we can't do on our own, Christ has already accomplished through the cross. And in surrendering through him, we experience the gospel. The gospel. 
let it transfer from concepts of truth into convictions in our heart. I'm going to pray, and then Rick's going to come up and, I believe, dismiss us as well with a few announcements. But, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that this, even though it's been such a tough passage of understanding, Lord, I believe that there is hope, there is courage, there is, um, there is wholeness in you. There is redemption. And, Lord, I just thank you that this morning that we walk out of here with our eyes fixed on you, the hope of our salvation, from whom our strength comes from. And Lord, you are the only one that can heal hearts from past. You're the only one that can catapult us towards our future. And Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ that comes along and strengthens us. But Lord, ultimately, we give way right now to your Holy Spirit and the work that you want to do in each one of us.